I told you about that person who is queer and wants to be a rabbi. On OkCupid? Okay yeah, on OkCupid. Okay yeah. They're from this town back at home because coronavirus. Yeah. They left me a geocache in the woods and I had to go find it. And it was like, whoa, I suddenly have wow. a mission adventure. This person is really wooing you. They are super wooing me. Wow. Okay, so I, I got the geocache and then I was like, I should leave a geocache too. So I left a little geocache. <laughs> and that's where we are. I am now geocaching with a queer Jewish person. Wow. Well, I hope you're using protection. It's definitely surreal. Welcome to it, baby. I know. I know. This is the new life we live. The new life, I suppose. I feel like I freaked out at you about the Talmud the other day. Did I freak out? Oh, it's fine. It was just, you know, it was a moment. It was a moment where I a little bit had to be a rabbi, but it's okay every so often. Oh, okay, great. Okay. I did subtweet you today. What? Really? Okay. <laughs> what did... I, did? I was afraid you'd see it and be offended, but I subtweeted you and it's, it's actually become quite popular. Do you want to hear the tweet? Yeah, yeah. Tell me the tweet. <clears throat> tell me the fucking tweet. To those who feel the Talmud and Judaism are oppressively legalistic, I would say our lives are all governed by equal complicated and weird codes they're just implicit and hidden the talmud's work is to make them explicit so they can be discussed and improved that's really cool and also fuck you hava <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't really about you like you weren't the person i was thinking of when i thought like to those who you mean you weren't thinking about me when you were tweeting oh my gosh there's no way out of this for me michael it's fine it's fine you right, when you right. date a celebrity you open yourself up to situations like this mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i just want to go on the record and say well i'm very excited for you to be having you know a a moment with this person from okq but i'm not open to a podcast host thruple oh all right i'll take that under advisement <laughs> I'm just saying our relationship in terms of this podcast is monogamous. That That's totally fine. But we do invite a third in every so often. <laughs> yes, we do. It's true. And with that, I will perhaps add our third for today, <laughs> Sam Miagetti. Call him up. Okay. Add call. Where's my bull when I need him? Oh my gosh. You're out of control. Now we're all on a conference call. Sam, can you say something? Uh, what? I don't know. What should I say? <laughs> that's fine. I just needed you to say something just for technical reasons. No offense, but that's the bottomest response I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah, that was very bottomy. I don't know. What should I say? Hello, Michael. Hello. H Hi, Hava. Hi, Hava. How are you? How am I, you ask? I'm well. I'm drinking an Irish coffee, which will probably keep me up all night, but that's fine because I'll just get high and play Diablo 3. All right. Okay. <laughs> which is what I'm really into these days. There are a lot of sins happening in that sentence. <laughs> it's more efficient if you do a bunch of them at once. It's like a sin diagram. Oh, it's a sin diagram. All right. Got it. That was completely improvised. I didn't know I was going to make that pun before I started that sentence. Power of whiskey, everyone. Michael... Hi, how are you? I'm good. I just woke up from a nap, which is a common activity that I engage in. And uh, I'm slowly losing my mind because of, you know, whatever. Everyone knows. No one needs to be reminded. <laughs> right. This is exciting because we have 
my friend Samuel Biagetti on. Yes. First things I have to say about Samuel Biagetti. We have eaten dinner together one time. It was a very challenging dinner experience, but the conversation was scintillating. He is a history person of some kind, a history... He's a history gay. Are you a professional history gay, Sam? Quasi-professional. It's adjunct, which is like being a scab, basically. Great. Adjunct, <laughs> history, faggot, Samuel Biagetti. Also, <laughs> I have to say, every time I say your name to Michael, because I never knew what your last name was until we started our Twitter relationship, every time I say it to Michael, I say, Samuel Biagetti. <laughs> I really give it some zest. I just want you to know that. What else should our listeners know about Sam? Michael and or Sam, welcome to chime in on this one. I think it's important for our listeners to know that he's a Jew and he's also Italian. Double whammy. I'm a stealth Jew because people don't get it from my name. So I'm the most dangerous kind. <laughs> the most dangerous Jew. I have a podcast. Which oh, yeah. We will call historian explaining. It's a general history podcast. Technically, my field is early American history, so I can talk about colonial Jews and all of that. But I basically have been doing all sorts of subjects, whatever I want, starting from the Middle Ages. And I've done some about Judaism and Judaism and Christianity and the Bible and all of that exciting stuff. And I will say that this podcast that Sam makes is very queer in the umbrella sense of the term, and that it is very going against the grain of the current academic institutional paradigms. You're creating a bunch of historical lectures that are basically college lectures that are available for free for people to listen to. Uh, yeah. that they would only have yeah. access to if they were enrolled in an expensive university class. Samuel is our font of historical knowledge. Yes. <laughs> and Nide remarks, Samuel, how do you feel about the Talmud? What's your relationship to the Talmud? Yeah, tell us about the Talmud. It's a strange relationship. I don't know very much about the Talmud. I mean, Chava is way more of an expert than I am. But I thought it was very interesting, your conversation last time about what is the Talmud and is it sort of like a bridge between how we live and the Torah? You know, I always have like a hundred thoughts going through my mind whenever I hear these sorts of conversations. I was like, well, the Torah isn't really a fixed thing either. It can be a bit of an illusion to think, oh, the Torah is just like this received book that tells us stuff, tells us facts, stories, laws. And then the Talmud is where you kind of unpack it or negotiate it. Because really the Torah is also this massive collection of different writings that often say different things and have different viewpoints and are really ambiguous. Even the rabbis often don't really know what a lot of the words and phrases in the Torah actually mean. And there's this tremendous room for ambiguity and multiple meanings and possibilities. It's sort of like what you were saying earlier about the Talmud, too, that like you shouldn't just think, well, there's this book and some smart guy sat down and, and wrote this book that tells us the stuff we're supposed to know and the stuff we're supposed to do. And then it got published and you buy it and it's got all the answers. Like it's actually about negotiation and possibilities. Torah is too. I already studied history first before I then went and started researching some about the Tanakh and like where it all came from. To me, it's like very exciting 
to think of the Tanakh historically and to think that all these different people all played some role in coming up with these different writings and then collecting them and then interpreting them. There's lots of mystery and layers. It's not just this authoritative body that just says what it says. Right. It sounds like, Sam, you are not a believer that all of Tanakh was given to Moses at once. Well, here's the thing. For one thing, it's normal and common in Judaism to say that the Torah is often metaphorical. Like you already mentioned before Maimonides, one of his big points was like, if the Torah says God reached out his arm, it doesn't literally mean God has an arm like you or me. That's just a metaphor to understand things. And really, when you're talking about God, you're talking about something totally metaphysically different that isn't like, you know, a guy that walks around with like a hammer. You could say the same thing about Moses receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai. You don't have to just look at that simplistically as like a literal statement that there was like this book with like an editor's preface and God reached out and handed it in one chunk to Moses. That can represent so much more of this process of revelation, discovery that created what we think of as the Torah and the whole Tanakh over time, right? You don't have to just take everything on this literal surface level. I think that just like the Tanakh and the Talmud have a multiplicity of voices within them, voicing oftentimes paradoxical viewpoints, we can, in fact, hold multiple viewpoints about the text themselves. I feel like I can be fully invested in the origin myth of the Torah coming to Moshe Rabbeinu at Sinai, and also, like, fully immersed in the process of a different kind of historical analysis of the text. It's funny, like, this comes up sometimes with the Torah and sometimes with other texts as well, that when you do historical analysis, sometimes people say, oh, but doesn't that take, like, the wonder and the mystery away from it? And I'm like, no, to me, it's the complete opposite. Like, if you think, well, the Torah is just this one item, this product that God just handed down to somebody, then it's like, well, that didn't probably take God much effort, right? If God is omnipotent, then it's like, all right, there's nothing that amazing about it, right? But if you say, no, people had to do this, and it took thousands of years and all this thought and negotiation and vision and prophecy, then to me, that makes it more miraculous and more amazing that this body has come down to us. And that is God to me. Like that process is exactly God. If there is such a thing, and and I'm pretty sure there is personally, that would be it. That would be a big part of it is the slow accumulation of humans' efforts towards the sacred. I was trying to think of an analogy of like, if you are speeding and an officer issues you a ticket, you could say, well, did that guy, Officer Smith, issue me the ticket? Or did the city of Worcester issue me the ticket? Well, it's not one or the other. It's like one was acting as an agent of the other. And so it's both, like both of those things are true. You know, one story is part of the other story. And if you say, okay, well, so someone who lived thousands of years ago had this radically different life, managed to write something that's come down to us for us to read and get something from 3,000 years later, is it the person who did that or is it God? Why do you have to separate those two things? Maybe both stories are true together. This is all very heady and delicious. Thank you, Hava. Thank you, Sam. But our listeners are here for the hot fucking historical takes. So, Sam. (laughs) 
Yeah. In five minutes, we've squared away all the inconsistencies of being both a scholar and a religious person. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Bring me the hot takes. What would you like to share with us this episode? What is something juicy? So there's lots of juicy stuff. One of the things I like to do when I talk about the Torah or the Bible is to say, how does it start? Begin at the beginning. The answer to that question is a thousand times more complicated than anyone expects. If I asked you, Mike, like, how does the Torah begin? What's the first line? Uh, in the beginning is, is the thing that comes to mind. A number one, that's not really the beginning because that was not the first to be written. Other passages in the first two scrolls, you know, Genesis and Exodus or Breshit and Shemot, right, in Hebrew, there are all sorts of passages in those books that are clearly much older. And you have to look through and find what was really composed first. And the number one clue that shows you what was written first, the passages that are the oldest, is if it's in verse, because verse is intended to be recited and memorized. And you can see that there are verse passages like songs and poems and prayers that are much older and that are in like older ancient Hebrew. And so clearly people had those stories and poems and prayers, and then they like stitched them together into this prose text. So you're actually not seeing things in their proper order if you just read from the beginning and assume that the beginning's the beginning. Biblical scholars think that they can probably tell what the earliest passage is that goes back the farthest into like the most ancient Hebrew. It's the Song of the Sea, which is about Adonai led us through the Red Sea to the other side. So now we're free and we're singing and dancing. So the Song of the Sea probably was a very, very ancient song that people sang and celebrated and danced to. And that's probably like our earliest kernel of Judaism that we can find. People sang and danced this celebration song about getting through the Red Sea. And then when you look at the gloss of it, there's like prose added in around it to sort of explain and fit it into the story, right? And it says, who sang this song? Miriam and the women. So most likely we can guess historically that probably that earliest piece of the Torah was most likely written by women. What? It was written by the women of the Jewish tribe. Yeah. <laughs> what? So what I'm saying is that <laughs> the most ancient piece of the Torah is basically a biblical Hebrew TikTok dance video. <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically, yeah. And then the rest <laughs> is just commentary, right? The rest is just is just adding on around that. Right. It's yeah, just totally. Miriam like dabbing once yeah. and then the whole Serious Torah sprung forth from that. Wow, wow. And then you say, okay, well, at some point over time, people composed all this other material to kind of frame and fill everything out and say like, all right, there was first there was a creation and a Garden of Eden. And then you get Abraham and the Jewish tribe and et cetera, right? And you sort of fill out the, the mythic history, right? But then you say, okay, well, let's start at the first line, like where you open up the beginning of the Torah. In the beginning, God created, in quotation marks, the heavens and the earth, right? And it seems pretty straightforward. You know, God's there and he decides we're going to make stuff. And that's how everything comes into being. That's why people say, oh, it's creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. But actually, like every word 
in that line is super ambiguous and really means something different if you look at it closely. For one thing, it says bara Elohim, so God created. But actually, recently, Hebrew scholars have looked at that verb bara, which is only like in ancient and biblical Hebrew. We don't use it anymore. And whenever it appears in the Torah, it's always talking about God distinguishing or separating two things. Male and female, he created them. That also is bara. If you look at how the word is used, it's not really saying create out of nothing. It's saying take things that are already there and like sort them out or distinguish them. So really saying God created the heaven and the earth is probably a mistranslation for one God thing. curated the heaven and the earth. <laughs> yeah, he's a curator, right. And almost every verse you go through in the Torah, there are words and phrases like this, where if you actually look at them closely, they might mean something completely different from what you thought. It's not this straightforward thing at all. And there are lots of these words that are called hapax legomena, where it's a word that only appears once in the whole Tanakh. So we don't know what it means. This happens many times. And then there are some words that only appear twice. And it's like really unclear, totally open to guessing what they mean. The verse that says a man shall not lie with a man in Leviticus, it says a man shall not lie with a man. It is a blah. And it has this Hebrew word that only appears twice in the whole Torah. And the one other place it appears is when it says don't eat shellfish. So homosexuality or, you know, sex between men, whatever, however you want to refer to it. And shellfish are both these things that are just something. We don't know what it is. They're both delicious. It apparently isn't good. They're just both so... (laughs) It's like, it's gross or like, oh, don't do it on Thursdays. We really do not know (laughs) what this word means. And yet we just go around translating it as if we do. There are all these ambiguities running all through it. And the other thing I just wanted to say about this first line at the beginning of Breshit is it refers to God as Elohim. That is one of the common names or words for God that is used repeatedly through the Torah. At root, it's a plural word. The im at the end means something like the gods or the divine being. Mm -hmm. But when it's used in sentences, it's used as if it's a singular word. It's like if you were to say children is very cute. It's doing plural and singular at once. Torah scholars are like, what's going on there? And basically the main current theory is that some of these texts that were written and then integrated into the Torah, they had this mindset called inclusive monotheism, which means they think that there's one like divine principle, but that all different gods are all manifestations of that divine principle. So it's not like oh, our God is the one God and your Canaanite God or whatever is a fake false idol. They seem to believe that all gods are real and valid, but they're all connected to sort of one divine principle. That's like written into the Torah. And it's only later then that people revised that and were like, no, 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 there's only one God. We've got the one real deal and all your other, all those other ones are fake. Which really connects with later, much, much later when the Kabbalists come around and they, they have this great idea about Sefirot and the divine emanations. Mm-hmm. It's an even more sort of refined, for lack of a better word, like version of inclusive monotheism. Yeah, yeah. When you encounter divine thing, it 
comes through in all these different manifestations. There's a really an interesting flavor to add on to this is that there's a common Kabbalistic interpretation that, especially in Bereshit, each one of the prime biblical characters represents one of the Sephirot, like they embody the virtue of that divine emanation, which is very... Whoa dipping its toe into the mikvah of polytheism. I've heard an interpretation that the reason that Sarah died after the binding of Isaac is because up until that point, Sarah had been embodying the Sephira of Gevura, of judgment and severity. And at that moment, Isaac became the embodiment. And so like Sarah's time as the avatar of Gevura was over, Mm -hmm. which is just Mm -hmm. full bonkers. That is <laughs> full bonkers. Okay, wow. Yeah, this kind of theology filters down through everything, you know, and people who are like Kabbalists who are really prolific will say like the way you eat food, you know, there are divine sparks that have been mm-hmm. scattered and are found in everything, in food and clothing and nature. And you're constantly encountering and regathering these divine sparks, like in everything you do. The point I think you're getting at is like, there are so many different ways of seeing God and seeing manifestations of God in everything, in the Torah and in life as you encounter it. Closing arguments, closing arguments. Closing arguments, yes. History, this tool, this way of thinking and applying logic to ephemera and objects of the past gives you spiritual fulfillment and meaning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that what... Torah scholars do even today is not all that far off from the rabbi whose conversations and views are recorded. There's like an excitement in finding meanings that convey something to you in what might otherwise seem to just be like a plain text. Yeah, I hope what Torah scholars do today isn't that far off. (laughs) I definitely think we are equally creating Talmud today as much as they were in their time. And now by being on this podcast, you have willingly or not entered yourself into the annals of history. Yeah. Exciting. (laughs) Where we love to go. Where we all love to go. History (laughs) as spiritual breakfast. Thanks everyone for listening. Join the Patreon, yada, yada. Oh, I'll announce a new Beit Midrash class sometime soon. Definitely going to do another Beit Midrash in May. So be on the lookout, everyone. Call the Talmud hotline. Call the Talmud hotline. Follow Sam on Twitter at Historiansplaining. Also go listen to Sam's podcast, Historiansplaining. We'll put a link in the description because we don't have show notes because we are low rent. We are very low rent. (laughs) Yeah. Love it. It's pandemic chic. Thanks for coming on the show, Sam. Maybe we'll have you on again to do some more historical exploration. Thank you. I love it. I love historical it. Historical learn- exploration. I'm going to learn more Talmud. Great. Great. Thank you, guys. Our pleasure. Goodbye to Sam and Shavuotov to all our listeners. Shavuotov. <laughs>